Welcome back to Two Crows Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Holmes. Now I'm hoping that my AC unit won't turn on for the floor below me as I'm recording because the fan has been really squeaky and I'm waiting for that to get replaced. So bear with me if you hear a weird squeaky sound. It's not me. I also had a scope and surgery on my esophagus, stomach, and small intestines uh, three or four days ago, so if I sound a little extra raspy, I have not been smoking. I just had something deep down my throat, and you can take that however you want. Now this story that I'm going to cover, it's actually a few stories. I'm going to dive deep into one of them and then cover a few others that are similar to it have excited me and fascinated me since I was about, I want to say 12, and I had a history teacher that was also excited by this, so I decided to dive into it for spooky season because it is pretty spooky. Uh, there's no ghosts involved. There might be demonic possession. You can decide that for yourself, but just the act of not having control over my own body is terrifying to me. But before we dive into that, we have some new patrons. Woo! I did announce these people on my Instagram, but as always, I want to announce them here as well. So first, we have my soy soy, Jordan, from the fake land of Ohio, joined in as a full-fledged accomplice. We also have Wendy Gonzalez, another full-fledged accomplice. We have Mr. Jeff as a voyeur, our first voyeur, woo! And we have Riotac 000 as a full-fledged accomplice as well. So welcome to the crow's nest, ya crazy crows. And I hope you enjoy all of your benefits. And I really appreciate all of the help. It has gotten me a new webcam. So starting recording tomorrow, I will have my new webcam up and running. And you'll be able to actually see my face. And I won't look to you how I see myself without my glasses on. So. I appreciate all of you. Now, I have been plagued with the need to get my jitters out. Dancing was a sort of stim for me growing up, and still can be when I'm really excited or happy. But this story is one that seems too strange to be true. But I assure you, it is. I know that you've heard of the Black Death bubonic plague, but have you heard of the Dancing Plague? In the summer of 1518, in the Salsace region of France, a hundred years before it was actually part of France, in the city of Salzburg, which was at the time a free imperial city in the Roman Empire, eyewitnesses, July 1518, claimed to have seen Frau Trophia refuse to do a task that her husband had told her to do, and instead, she stepped outside into the street and began dancing. At first, people did not think too much of this, but after several hours, she fell to the ground and fainted of exhaustion. You would think this would snap her out of her fit of dancing, but you would be wrong. When she came to, she climbed back to her feet and began dancing again. 
It was said her husband and friends pleaded with her to stop dancing and just go back inside. She just kept on going. People could not help but stop and watch her and make comments to her, but she would not stop her dancing. Many people began to surround her in wonder and confusion. No one knew why she was doing this. There was no music playing, no one else dancing at the time, and it confused everyone. People initially thought she was just being rebellious and acting out, trying to get attention. But as it continued, for many hours, people started wondering if she was possessed by a demon or entity of some sort. Her facial expression was blank. She did not appear to look at any of the individuals watching her. And this did not change for hours. She did not break character the entire time. In the 1500s, it was not uncommon for people to try to blame witchcraft or demonic possession for things they did not understand. After another few hours of dancing without a break at all, nothing to eat or drink, she once again collapsed to the ground. People were relieved, thinking she would get help and end the odd dance possession. But that feeling of relief was squashed when she came to and immediately got up and began dancing again. The reports claimed that she kept this up for days and each time she would begin dancing after passing out, her dancing became more jerky and violent and she looked more and more possessed. Now, I'm stubborn. I will hold a protest for quite a while, but this is beyond my level of super-powered strong will. Looking at her, the crowd reported her being covered in bruises and cuts. Her feet were raw and bloody. Her hair was a mess. She looked extremely ill and dehydrated. To make matters worse, the illness that had bestowed Trophia seemed to be catching and others began to dance with the same cold expression and lack of desire for rest or substance. They would collapse as well and get back up and begin dancing again. At first, about 30 people were dancing alongside her. This soon grew over the weeks going into August. Over 400 people had joined in on this odd flash mob. Records show about 10 to 15 people a day were dying of dehydration, overexertion, and blood loss. The town officials knew they needed to step in, but they did not know how or what to do, so they began meeting about it. They did not know if this was spiritual, civil disobedience, or medical. They were leaning towards a plague brought down as punishment for the sins of the people. The doctors disagreed and treated the people as if it was an ailment that could potentially be contagious through contact or breath. They came to a conclusion that they were suffering from an ailment where the town's people, blood had gotten too hot, which led them to be compelled to move their bodies and dance to provide relief for the condition. When I am too hot, I do not want to move or dance. Sit me down in front of a fan with an ice-cold beer and call it good. 
But they explained it as the people sweating out the illness, which I guess sort of makes sense to their knowledge of medicine back then, but that seems to go against human nature when sick. Although I do have kids and half of them tend to want to lay around and be lethargic while the other half tend to want to run around and act like nothing is wrong at all, yet they're running 103 degree fever. I mean, we have to remember that medicine back then relied on what they could see with the eye and with a little magnification. They relied on healing through the four humors, which was discovered by Greek physicist and alchemist Hippocrates. He discovered this around 460 BCE. It's believed that the four humors are blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. Through this theory, it's believed if these four elements were in balance, the body was healthy, and if one or more was out of whack, the body was ill. So they had to blame the illness on at least one of these four, so they blamed the blood. They believed even personality traits and mental health was caused by these being out of alignment as well. Blood being cheer and courage, phlegm representing apathy, yellow bile affecting anger, and black bile representing melancholy. So if you're depressed, it's your black bile. There are aspects of this that go into today's methods of treating certain ailments and mental health disorders, but we know that it's a lot more complex than that. So he was on to something, but he wasn't quite hitting the nail on the head. But can you really blame them? They had a lot of things going on that they couldn't really see, but they knew that something was causing it. So they were discovering and trying to figure out what was going on. And science from back then has helped us in science today. So back to the story. In response, they decided to give the people what they wanted, which they thought, was a place to dance, and they tried bringing the people that were afflicted to two dance halls that they had set up. They brought in musicians and other people who were not afflicted to dance with them, thinking that this would provide a safe space for them to get the ailment out and be able to go back to their day-to-day lives. Because remember, these people started dancing without music. There had been no music playing for weeks that these people had been afflicted. They were just dancing in the streets, dancing near each other, not with each other, and they were just moving their bodies and it's getting more and more jerky and violent as the time went on with each of these people. And as you probably guessed This did not work and actually made it worse. And those healthy citizens that they had come dance with these other people who were infected uh, became infected with the dance. This was weeks in, remember? I wonder if the citizens were being force-fed water and food uh, because it didn't seem like there were any accounts of them being interested in drinking or eating or stopping dancing for any reason. So I'm wondering if when they would collapse, because these people were all dancing, collapsing, getting back up and dancing, um, if there were people coming around and giving them water, I would assume so, since uh, Frau Trophea uh, was survived all of this for weeks. So she had to have had water of some sort. 
Now, remember, there were people dropping like flies. 10 to 15 a day were dying, and so people really needed to figure out what to do about this. For the safety of the people, the officials came back together and outlawed dancing, thinking this would stop people from this weird affliction. Of course, this would work, right? Wrong. It's never worked in movies. It's never worked in TV shows. It didn't work back then. They also outlawed any upbeat music. Anything that would make people want to tap their toes was outlawed. I do not know why they thought any of this would work, since it all started in silence. It didn't start with music. You could, however, get a dancing and music permit for a wedding or celebration. They didn't want to take that away from people. (laughs) They weren't complete monsters, I guess. But they hoped this would stop the dance fever. The religious groups all agreed to get... (laughs) get her and the other afflicted members of society off the streets and over to a shrine of St. Vitus. They wanted to pray and heal people beneath the shrine, thinking that this would heal the ailment. They collected the ill, laid them on wagons, tying them down, and these people kept trying to dance through this while laying down and through the 25-mile journey over to St. Vitus. They didn't seem to even acknowledge that they were in the back of these wagons. They didn't really fight, they just danced through it and moved their bodies while being tied down, which had to have been real fun for those who were tying them. They didn't know whether or not God himself or the devil had bestowed this ailment on the people, but they were hoping that they could pray it away, because that's what we do in society, we pray it away. And they chose this saint in particular because he was a Christian martyr um, who was killed as a child and was believed to have healed people with physical ailments, including tremors and different afflictions of the feet, through touch. For them, this seemed to fit pretty well with what was going on, but I doubt he had anyone this afflicted in his life that he had healed. They untied the people from the wagons and they danced them into the shrine of St. Vitus. It is reported as they grew near the shrine, they fell to the ground and were prayed over. Each dancer then were given a pair of red shoes, which were also blessed um, by religious officials through the shrine. They were then said to be cured and went on with their lives. After this, many different theories have been provided over this phenomenon. Some believe that they were afflicted by an evil entity and Vitus cured them. Some believe Vitus brought the curse on them and only took it away once the people came to him because people had given up on giving him attention and praying to him. Now, let's dive into some other theories. Forgive me if I say any of these names wrong. I tried to look them up and again, they are said many different ways in different videos. A Swiss physician and alchemist named Periclesius visited a few years later to dig into what happened and interview residents and onlookers as well as the inflicted. He discovered that Frau Trophia's husband hated when she would dance, 
and she would do it just to annoy him when he would try to get her to do things she didn't want to do or when they were arguing. The theory led him to believe that the others joined in out of sexual frustration, interest, and boredom, as well as just because others were doing it. Have you seen those studies where people start waiting in a line for something and others just join in not knowing what the line is for? He believed it was like that. People love to be included and be a part of a group. Some people love attention and like to do what is getting attention. I mean, look at TikTok and people using others' sounds and some dances and others' talking points to get views. Let's not act like Periclesius was all that great for what he discovered. He claimed that the ones who were inflicted were all whores and scoundrels and is reported saying that these sufferers should have been locked in a dark room and given only bread and water until they snapped out of it. But the fact they did this until a lot of people were dying every day leaves a lot of medical professionals and psychologists who study the cases not believing it was only for attention or out of frustration. Usually a act like this for attention doesn't lead to their actual death. Societal stress and religious guilt has been the cause of many mass afflictions of illnesses or behaviors, usually not to this extreme, but this is more likely a cause of mass hysteria. There was less of a hierarchy of class back then. You were rich or extremely poor, working for the rich. There was not much of an in-between back then, especially in that region. People worked to die and died for their work. You started working at a young age and stopped when you fell dead or became a burden on your family if you no longer could provide. There were no retirement plans, paid time off, no hope to invent something that could make you millions. The poor were basically owned by the rich, and the rich were the top, less than 1%, and the poor were everyone else. Historians believe this led to a mass affliction of hysteria where people were so broken by society and the structures that doomed you to live a life of servitude and back-breaking labor based solely on the family you were born into. Now, today in society, we have a large population of people exiting religion due to how we were raised in a guilt-ridden household. We were told that we were worthless as women if we were not pure for a man. We are taught everything happens for a reason and how we need to look at our lives and blame ourselves when bad things happen to us. We are taught that if we do not live perfectly to the standards of our denomination, we are doomed to an eternity of suffering. We are told our bodies are not ours, and we are to do with them as the church deems appropriate. Well, back then, it was the same and worse. With the lack of medical discoveries we have today, they blamed everything bad that happened on spiritual warfare and the deeds of the sufferer. I mean, that's victim blaming at its finest. So, when people saw this woman lose control over her body and dance... They would assume that she did something to deserve this punishment and would internalize their own actions and guilt and begin to feel they deserve the same punishment 
They would disassociate from their own desires out of trauma and religious guilt and begin to dance just like her. Now, this seems like a very odd circumstance, but it wasn't the first time there was a dancing plague. Hundreds of years before this plague, we can find another of dancing German children in year 1237. About a hundred children began dancing in Erfurt and danced all the way to Arnstadt, 12 miles away. Once they arrived in Arnstadt, they collapsed from exhaustion. And my research showed up over and over that the story of the Pied Piper came from the tale of these children. The Lundberg manuscript gives an early German account of the events. According to the Christmas Eve edition, the Saturday Evening Post in 1955, on the back of the last tattered page of a dusty chronicle called The Golden Chain, written in Latin in 1370 by the monk Heinrich of Hertford, is there written in a different handwriting the following account. Here follows a marvelous wonder, which transpired in the town of Hamelin, in 1284, on the feast of Saints John and Paul, a certain young man, thirty years of age, handsome and well-dressed, so that all who see him admired him. Because of this appearance, crossed the bridges and entered the town of the West Gate. He then began to play all through the town a silver pipe of the most magnificent sort. All the children who heard his pipe, in the number of a hundred and thirty, followed him to the east gate, and out of the town to the so-called execution place or calvary. There proceeded to vanish, so that no trace of them could be found. The mothers of the children ran from the town to town, but they found nothing. It is written, a voice was heard from on high, and a mother was bewailing her son. And as one counts the years according to the years of our Lord, or according to the first, second, or third year of an anniversary, so do people in Hermelin reckon the years after the departure and disappearance of their children. This report I found in an old book, and the mother of the Dean Johann von Lude saw the children depart. This was written in response to the Pied Piper luring children away from German towns into the Calvary or to their deaths. Contrary to the Pied Piper, the children were brought back and returned to their families, but many of them died soon after being returned while the others who survived lived with tremors the rest of their lives. More German dancing plagues through the 1300s have records of people hopping around, dancing, foaming at the mouth, refusing food and water, and passing out and coming to, continuing to dance again. No one would touch them because of fear of the Black Death. They just had experienced this and saw many of their own family members pass away and the few that were lucky enough to survive didn't want to be plagued with another disease. Again, in the 1300s later on, through the Netherlands, people fell into another dancing spell for months that slowly faded on its own, with no explanation. 
A nunnery in the Spanish Netherlands soon fell victim to the spell in 1491. Several nuns were possessed by devilish familiars, which impelled them to race around like dogs. They would jump out of trees, imitate birds, claw their way up tree trunks in the manner of cats. Such possession epidemics were by no means confined to nunneries, but nuns were disproportionately affected, according to Newman. Over the next 200 years in nunneries everywhere, from Rome to Paris, hundreds were plunged into states of frantic delirium, during which they foamed at the mouth, screamed, and convulsed. They would proposition exorcists and priests and confess to having carnal relations with devils or even Christ himself. Another theory of why this delirium kept happening throughout the region was something called Tarantism. This is a psychological illness characterized by an extreme impulse to dance prevalent in southern Italy from the 15th to the 17th century and was believed to be caused by the bite of a tarantula. According to Abstract Obscura, on a hot day in the summer of 1728, Anna Palazzo was working in a vineyard surrounding her hometown in Campi Salentina when a tarantula bit her on the elbow. The young woman collapsed, and the farmers working beside her rushed to her side as the situation deteriorated. Her face and stomach swelled, her breathing became ragged and deep. Worried that she was on the verge of death, her husband and the other farmers hurried to bring the poor girl into town. Slung over the back of a donkey and tied up as if she were a cadaver, according to the local physician, Nicola Caputo. She was nearly unconscious when they dropped her onto her bed and called the only people who could still save her, the musicians. Anna wasn't suffering from the average spider bite. She had been bitten by the Tarantola, a creature of local myth and legend. She had become a Tarantata. Soon, the tambourines, mandolins, guitars, and harmonicas crowded into her small room. In the center of the town, they began to play. They played one melody and then another, but the woman barely stirred. At the third melody, or maybe the fourth, the woman in my presence awoke and began to dance with a much force and fury that one might have called her crazy writes Caputo. In this 18th century study of the infamous tarantula and its victims, after two days of dance, she was free and healed. Salento is a religion in Italy, in the southernmost part of the Apulian Peninsula, the heel of the boot, mind you. The region has long been associated with magic, music, and dance from the medieval ages until just a few decades ago. Physicians, travelers, ethnomusicologists, and anthropologists documented the regional phenomena 
of tarantismo or tarantism. Mainly young women and occasionally men bitten by tarantulas or other venomous insects like scorpions would be stricken by an apathetic unresponsiveness from which they could recover only through hours and often days of lively dance. As she dances, she becomes the spider that bit her, describes a 20th century Italian anthropologist Ernesto de Martino in The Land of Remorse, one of the most extensive studies of the phenomenon, which I highly recommend you read in English if you don't speak Italian, um, if you want to know more about this tarantism. This spider could be one of two species, the Lycosa tarantula, or wolf spider, a large and frightening spider with a painful but innocuous bite, or the European black widow, a smaller spider with a dangerous but rarely fatal bite associated with muscle spasms and vomiting. But the scientific names and classifications of these spiders were of no interest to the women suffering from tarantism. And many believe that the spider's venom had little to do with what the women endured. Rather, it was kind of possession. When she heard melodies of musicians, the Tarantara dragged herself across the floor, clawed on her hands and knees, climbed up the walls, jumped and poured her feet onto the ground as if she had become a spider. The musicians had to into it the melody that might make a sufferer dance. With their tambourines and violins, they played lively folk music called the Pizzica Pizzica, in reference to the pizzico, or bite, of the tarantula. After her frenetic dance, the tarantata would eventually collapse, freed from possession by the tarantula and healed. But for many, this freedom was only temporary. My dear, the tarantulas are haunting me, wrote Anna, the older woman who had suffered a tarantula bite in her youth, in a letter sent in the early 1960s. The letter was sent to Annabella Rossi, a friend and young researcher. I can't eat because my plate is full of fat scorpions. I can't drink. My glass is full of tarantulas, too. And the last night, my bed was packed with the creatures. It was late June, the peak of the agricultural year. And Anna had fallen victim to the tarantula again, as happened to many tarantadas. Every year, on June 29th, the Feast of St. Paul... The Tarantadas would congregate in Galantina, a city in the south of the Salento, to ask St. Paul for mercy from the terrible tarantula. Some scholars argue that the roots of Tarantism can be traced back to ancient Greece when groups of men and women worshipped Dionysus in ecstatic trance-like dances but there are few, if any, documents that attest to such origins. Officially, Tarantism first appeared in the 14th century text by a physician from Padova, describing how to treat bites or stings from venomous animals and insects. 
Later, doctors like Ferdinand Epifanio in the 17th century and Nicola Caputo in the 18th studied the phenomenon. Documenting cases and effective treatments, Epifino offers a recipe for a homemade brandy. This could be used to treat tarantismo. It included not only tender oak leaves, blessed thistle, and dried red roses, but also sage, marjoram, lavender, wormwood, rosemary, bay leaves, juniper, cinnamon, and other local spices. Another notable recipe suggested that the venomous tarantulas themselves be ground into a powder and mixed into a hearty glass of wine. However, Dr. Epifanio concluded that in Apulia, there is no remedy more effective and immediate than music. These early descriptions of the venomous bite and the associated music and dance make no reference to Christianity, but in the late 17th century, as the church sought more uniform control of its subjects, Tarantism began one of the many traditions co-opted by Catholicism. St. Paul patron, saint of the city of Galantina and of those bitten by venomous animals, emerged as the protector and savior of Tarantata. In the late 1700s, a chapel dedicated to St. Paul was built in Galantina, next to a well whose water, as the legend goes, had been blessed by St. Paul during his travels through the Mediterranean. If local musicians were unsuccessful in curing Tarantata in her home, she would be brought to St. Paul's Chapel in Galantina, where she would plead with the saint for mercy from the spider's venom and often drink the blessed well water. In addition to the suite of musicians, the family would also bring monetary offerings. For many Tarantatas, this trip to Galantina became a yearly pilgrimage. In June of each year, her symptoms would return and she and her family would work to collect money to fund the trip and the pay for the musicians, as well as any offerings to St. Paul. In the 17th and 18th centuries, both men and women, rich and poor, fell victim to Tarantism. However, in 1959, when Ernesto de Martino and his team traveled to Salento to document the relics of Tarantism, they found that the phenomenon largely affected women, women who had been abused, who had been forced to marry men they didn't love, who had lost their husbands, or who found themselves to be margins of society in other ways. De Martino and later researchers like Luigi Chiarti argued that Tarantism was an expression of this marginality, a way for these women to manifest their social suffering, have the suffering recognized, and relocate themselves to join a community of other marginalized women. Rather than be outside of it, when a woman, young or old, was struck with Tarantism, it was an opportunity for the community to come together. In this stricken woman's home, often just a single room, the family would lay a white sheet on the floor, and as the musicians would play, the tarantata would begin her dance, 
arching, running, climbing, crawling, barking, resting, and doing it all over again to the melodies played by the tambourines and violins. Community members would gather in the room bringing food or a few coins for the family, observing in curiosity and wonder, but also in solidarity. When the woman collapsed, Four hours or four days later, exhausted from her dance and freed from the tarantula, she found herself surrounded by family, friends, and community members expressing their support and enthusiasm. One morning in the early 1900s, a family brought their elderly grandma into a mental health clinic in Poggiardo, a small town in southern Salento. The family presented her to the psychiatrist in the clinic, asking him to treat her for a psychotic episode. But the psychiatrist, who had studied traditional medicine and healing, in addition to his formal education, knew that drugs would not help the older lady. The little grandma was a tarantata, he told me, recounts Giacomo Torriano, a sociologist and musician who worked in the clinic at the time. The family didn't understand what was happening. They didn't know that she needed music. In that moment, Toriano understood that the Tarantism was dead. The cultural context in which the phenomenon had existed for centuries had disappeared. In the years after, De Martino and Chiriati studied Tarantism, modernization, and industrialization, and Immigration led to an abrupt abandonment of the fields stretching across Salento. Entire systems of the knowledge and ways of life, including those that had led to the abuse and mistreatment of women, were abandoned in turn. The Tarantadas slowly disappeared. The musicians stopped being called to homes across Salento. And the mornings of June 29th, the streets in front of St. Paul's Chapel in Galantina were empty. Though a folk revival has rescued the melodies of the pizzica pizzica, and local dance companies have created dances inspired by those of the Tarantadas, there are few people left who might recognize a true Tarantada suffering and treat it appropriately with a community-wide event filled with music and dance. Luigi Gigi Stefani, one of the most famous musicians of the Tarantadas, once claimed that the chemicals and pesticides used since the industrialization of the early 1950s led to the demise of the Tarantadas. With all those herbicides, pesticides, and anti-parasites they were just dumping in the fields, there are no more tarantulas. But it wasn't just the tarantulas that caused terrorism. The entire culture that had conjured, as well as cured, the tarantata was gone. After talking to many women who had gone through tarantata and terrorism, they said that they would hear music in their heads that they knew wasn't there, that they would feel the tarantula in their body and they would feel it telling them what to do and how to dance and what music to dance to. And until the music matched up in reality with the music in their head, that it would continue to come to fruition through dance and through movement and acting like the spider. 
You may think that this is all just ancient history, that this doesn't happen anymore, but remember that story from the 1990s of the grandmother and them treating it as tarantism. And you would think in modern days we wouldn't be dealing with things like this, but that is so far from the truth. Think over your social media and internet experiences. Many people tend to become inflicted with the same symptoms and ailments of those around them and the things that they see. Even things they see on television shows and movies. Fathers getting symptoms of mothers' pregnancies and labors. People self-diagnosing disorders they do not have because those around them get attention or some sort of monetization surrounding their neurospicy tendencies. The amount of self-diagnoses in this world right now that are harming themselves and others through not getting real help and us not having real help to get easily is a problem. We need better mental health care. We need more people in the industries and we need the accessibility to people no matter their pay range or ability to have insurance. We need to be able to help our people because this phenomena has been going on since the beginning of time and it's continuing through new means. And yes, these mass hysterias of people in towns is now happening throughout society in general because we're not just subject to the people around us. We're subject to people in our feeds, in our for you pages, the things that we surround ourselves with. Other theories are those who are part of this through the hundreds of years are all part of a secret cult that decides when this will occur and afflict people. They believe this secret society sends out messages to its cult members of when they will decide to start dancing. It's a dance cult, I guess. One where we may call upon to get a flash mob together. That may be a joke, but... In all reality, this has been a theory that has been going on for hundreds of years, that there is a cult out there that is starting these dance plagues. They say it is to elicit a fear or some sort of control over a region of people. It's really not out of the realm of possibilities. Others have believed that food may have been tainted, that these people had eaten with toxins in it, creating hallucinations. Possibly something in the air, a natural gas that has leaked. They believe that it could be like the Oracle of Delphi, where it, earthquakes had caused gas leaks to provide the perfect amount of hallucinogens in the air for her to have visions of speaking to Apollo and provide answers for high up officials and farmers of when they should plant their crops or when wars should spring out against whom. But whether it's a spider, a gas leak, a cult, or something in the food, it did happen. And it happened time and time again. And it has continued to happen even up until today. Will we ever know what really is causing this phenomena? Possibly not. But it's real, and it's something that has always terrified me. 
I would love to know what you think the cause is. What are your theories? And I would appreciate if you got to the end of this and you found it fascinating like I do, share this with someone else you think would like this content. Like my page, follow me if you want to be alerted to other episodes coming out. I do post two to three times a week. Join the Patreon if you want to be a part of a community of people helping me research and find information, have the equipment to do so. It's all appreciated from the bottom to the top tier. I adore you all and I appreciate you giving me this space to be able to share with you the things that I find fascinating. Have a wonderful week. Thank you. Crow out.